we'd finally made enough money to buy some nice white bottles and put a, a nicer kind of more professional label. We hired a graphic designer. And so, you know, we started uh, selling them in these white bottles and they started getting returned. And people said they wanted the brown bottles. And I knew it was the same thing because it was being pulled out of the same vat, basically, right? And they said, this stuff doesn't work. I need, we need the stuff in the brown bottles. So people had this in their mind. It looked kind of illegal, kind of shady, that it probably works better. It was so disappointing because we put so much work into these other labels, too. So, <laughs> But you know what? It was a great lesson. <laughs> Let's go. Welcome to Building Bigfoot the podcast that's about growing yourself and your business. If you are, uh, you know, venture-backed and you go big, you're a unicorn. Uh, but what about uh, the rest of us who are growing our businesses, who are uh, self-financing, self-funding, uh, and, and growing? You have to be a little bit smarter. You have, to, you have to grow a little bit different. And so this podcast is really about bringing on really cool guests, interviewing them, learning their story, hearing their intra- entrepreneurial journey, and... Uh, and then just just getting to know them a little bit as uh, as they've grown their business, they've grown themselves at the same time, and and vice versa. So for uh, this next guest, I really am looking forward to uh, introducing Lance Schaefer. Lance Schaefer was my personal uh, mentor, Stephen, and myself. He mentored both of us for many years, and uh, I don't think I would be where I am today. Actually, I know I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Lance. So. Uh, Basically, so Lance, you're an entrepreneur, a leader, automotive, digital marketing leader, a product strategist. Uh, Lance was uh, nominated by Ernst & Young under the Emerging Entrepreneur Award, EIR at AO at uh, the time when we met, and the co-founder of Eleven Free, um, now the general manager of Lotlinks. And uh, he has a really fascinating story. And without further ado, this is a man I absolutely love, trust, and I just feel like we need more good humans in the world like Lance. So Lance, why don't you quickly introduce yourself and uh, let's go. Great. No, thank you. Thank you for the kind words, Jonathan. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, it's been, almost been 10 years ago since I met you and uh, I really have enjoyed our relationship. So I really appreciate you, you uh, uh, having me today. So that's awesome. But uh, yeah, so thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's that, honestly, man, it's a pleasure. I... Uh, I respect you so much, and and I so appreciate you uh, you being here. The so um, so for those who don't know, Lance is one of the um, the OGs when it comes to SEO and Google, and uh, I'm I'm gonna really I would love to hear more about that story. But before we do, Lance, you growing up is uh, is is entrepreneurship something that you knew in your mind that you were gonna get into? How did you end up? Uh, getting into business? Yeah, not really. Um, you know, growing up, um, you know, as a, you know, I didn't, uh, my parents were a little bit entrepreneurial. My mother was entrepreneurial, but in a small business sense. And, and you know, my dad was a mechanic. Um, early on, I really had a love of science and math. Like that was definitely where my kind of like, uh, kind of passions were in music. But I did have the one kind of first entrepreneurial taste. I did, um, I did have a desire to make money. And I remember that as a young kid. And I remember uh, trying to figure out how I do it. I was in this small town in Saskatchewan. I was in grade seven. There weren't a lot of like, there were some odd jobs and stuff I could do. So I got a paper route, which is, I guess, uh, in retrospect, as entrepreneurial, you got to, back then you had to buy the papers and you had to collect. And if you didn't collect the money, you were out like, you're out the papers and you had, you did have a protected route, but you had to go market and try to, 
keep your customers happy or they could cancel anytime. So I did that for about three years. Um, I never really thought about it as entrepreneurship per se. I just looked at it as a way to make money and uh, uh, really enjoyed that. And then, um, but yeah, going into, even into uh, graduating high school, I had fully intended to become a school teacher. So I was enrolled at the uh, University of Saskatchewan in the, in education and kind of had a last minute change of heart um, and just, you know, was advised by, by someone like, Hey, maybe you maybe be more into, into uh, business. You seem like you have a business mind. And I hadn't really thought about that. So I gave it some good thought and said, okay, maybe I'll go to business school, but I, it was too late to apply at university of Saskatchewan. Uh, so I applied to Winnipeg, um, and, which is how I ended up in Winnipeg for so long. Um, and went there and, and really enjoyed business school. Um, and, and, but so I mean, but yeah, like early on though, that wasn't certainly my motivation. And I didn't like, I wasn't think even in business school, I started out in accounting and thought I'd be an accountant because I like math and, and that aspect of it. So it certainly wasn't something that uh, was really evident to me early on in my life. That's for sure. <laughs> that's fascinating. So uh, whereabouts in Saskatchewan, where are you from? Yeah, so I'm from a town called Esterhazy, which is um, pretty much in the Mani- pretty close to the Manitoba Saskatchewan border in the south. So not on a major highway. It's a mining town, so it's kind of where the mine is. It's not on a highway like most towns. So most people have never driven through it, but it's about maybe an hour north of the number one highway, um, uh, you know, close to the Manitoba border. Do you know? Uh, have you heard of Leader, Saskatchewan? Sort of on the west side. Yeah, I, I certainly have. You know, it's funny. I've got a good story about Leader, which is way on the other side of the province. I've only been there once. And in grade 12, I was on student council and they had the leadership conference for all the student councils in Saskatchewan in Leader, Saskatchewan. And I don't know if they always had it there, but I thought it was kind of a neat thing. And yeah, we got to check out those big sand dunes out there. Uh, they're amazing. Um, yeah, they are cool. Cypress yeah. Hills. And, are you, do you yeah. know that area, uh, John? Yeah, there? so that was the first place that we moved to when we moved to Canada. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah. No kidding. I know exactly where that is. That's awesome. <laughs> so now it makes a lot of sense. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't been to Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan is filled with the world's most welcoming and kindest people you'll ever meet. And uh, this makes tons of sense that Lance is obviously from Saskatchewan <laughs> now. I had no idea. So I always thought you of you, you as a uh, Winnipeg uh, guy. So no, I was no, like that this was really just great impression of Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was just by chance. Yeah, just, just by chance. I, I applied for the. I, I missed the deadline. <laughs> I <laughs> full intentions of going to Saskatoon. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. So, so you you make it to Winnipeg, and it's funny because um, so you wanted to be a teacher, and uh, you know, I love to learn personally. I, I find like there's nothing more, um, and I also I have a lot of respect for for teaching and uh, that the institution of teaching as well because, yeah. There's really there's there's very few things you can do in your life that um, you're going to be able to impart or be uh, able to gather information from somebody. It's a it's a very cool thing. Um, but then you chose the entrepreneurial journey. Um, so did you did you get into like so what happened after that? Yeah. So yeah. So I went and I did a year of in order it, the way it worked there was you did a, I did a year of science and then got into the business school there. And um, it was it was a great business school. There was and but during that period, I did a year of accounting uh, and finance, and I just realized it. I just wasn't getting jazzed by it. And uh, I was living at the residence at, at University of Manitoba at the time, and yeah, I was running into some pretty entrepreneurial people, and that was exciting. And I kind of had this thought by about the second or third year, like 
here I am studying business, but wouldn't it be better if I just did some business? Like, why not just try? It was kind of like frustrating in a way because you're learning all about it, but you're not doing like you're, it's very academic, right? Which with business school. So at that point, um, uh, probably my first entrepreneurial venture at that point in time is uh, there was a new, uh, with a partner uh, who was um, doing his master's in physiology, uh, introduced me to creatine monohydrate, which was the, a brand new uh, kind of uh, bodybuilding supplement uh, that really wasn't available anywhere. He had seen it at a conference in New Orleans and said, this is going to be a big thing. What, what year was this? This was in, I think, 93 or 94. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was early. Yeah, it was really early. No one had heard of it. Um, and so we uh, we started getting a hold of it and had this crazy label of this like flexing bodybuilder in a brown in a brown jar. It looked illegal, actually. And, and it was because they were the cheapest cars. <laughs> But so we, and we had some great, like we had most of, we had lots of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on, you know, that were our customers. It was kind of the biohackers of the, of the time. It was definitely the biohack. It's amazing actually how it's um, kind of stayed. Like a lot of people still use creatine. Um, so that, and, and actually I, I made pretty good money off that. Like it was, um, it was, you know, we were marking up like crazy. I, and, you know, it's funny. I learned a lot. One of my favorite stories about that is um, we had, we'd finally made enough money to buy some nice white bottles. And, uh, and, and, and put a, a nicer kind of more professional label. We hired a graphic designer. And so, you know, we started uh, selling them in these white bottles and they started getting returned and people said they wanted the brown bottles. And I knew it was the same thing because it was being pulled out of the same vat basically. Right. And they said, this stuff doesn't work. I need, we need the stuff in the brown bottles. And it was like, it, it, so people had this in their mind. It looked kind of illegal, kind of shady that it probably works better. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyways, we went back to brown bottles. It's <laughs> like, so, okay, I mean, they're cheaper, they're better for us. So it was, uh, uh, that was one of my favorite kind of marketing lessons that I had out of, out of that at the time. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a business. We, we kind of got out of it. You know, it's funny in retrospect, it would have been good to stay in it probably, uh, like a lot of things that I got out of. Um, I, I remember seeing it at like a GNC and I thought, oh, we must be finished then because how in the world would we compete with GNC and, and uh, that, you know, kind of why would people buy from us? The internet wasn't a thing yet. So, uh, you know, I guess in retrospect, if I would have held on, we could have maybe sold it online and had a good online supplement business, but uh, that didn't dawn on me. So, um, yeah, so we just kind of got out of it and, and went and kind of carried on from there. That's funny. So uh, the Wistia founder um, was in uh, Boston when I was there and he shared that, uh, the one thing that he wished he had told himself, like if he wished he had knew, um, was that uh, he he constantly underestimated the size of the market that he was in. And so obviously being one of the first founders in the video um, uh, hosting platform space, so you had uh, YouTube, Vimeo, and Westia, essentially, those are the three major players. And he just, he thought it was a s- small thing. And... Uh, and like, think how big video has become and it constantly grows. Right. And so that was his lesson to himself is like, is like, we do a good, we sometimes underestimate the size of the market that we're in and the opportunity that like the actual opportunity and fast forward another 20 years and how big is it going to be? Um, 
but there's another the point here that I thought was really interesting is the whole placebo effect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The brown bottle. Yeah. That was just, uh, it was just, it blew me away. Yeah. I just, uh, it was, it was so disappointing because we put so much work into these other labels too. So, <laughs> but you know what? It was a great lesson. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how wild, um, the, uh, I, I just think, so there was this, um, uh, they did a study, uh, I forget by the university, I was just reading it. Um, I actually found this through ChatGPT, um, which is, I think, so cool. Yeah. But I, there was they did a study on rats. This is one of the first um, times that they were able to show the power of placebo because it wasn't a human effect. And, uh, and so they basically were giving the rats a, uh, a mixture of food and one of the chemicals in the food was affecting their immune system. And then uh, when they removed the chemical, uh, the effect on their immune system continued when they ate the food. And huh. yes, and so they were they were blown away. So what they showed is that the placebo effect has the um, has a direct core like direct impact on our immune system. And it's isn't that like. That's, it's insane. Yeah, like I mean, it's amazing the placebo effect. It's uh, you, you know we kind of take it for granted, but how does it work? I mean, there must be. I'm sure you probably know about this more, but how does it work? It's unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one day. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would, I'd love to know more about the placebo. It is probably but it works. Super Everyone knows it works. <laughs> yeah, if you can hack the placebo effect, it's amazing. So, uh, so you get out of the creatine business. Um, wh where do you go next? Yeah. So the next thing we did was, so, uh, in the summer of 94 Netscape went public and, um, I had never really been on the internet. I had, didn't have an email address. Um, I had a computer, but I was just doing school assignments, you know, with Microsoft word and playing some doom. And, and, uh, so the Netscape came out it was the, and it was the largest IPO in history. And I knew this because I actually missed it. I didn't even hear about it till I went back to school. So I was in, I was working over the summer and got back to school and took a corporate finance course. And the, and the professor said, Hey, the largest IPO in history happened this summer. Of course, there was no internet. I wasn't, I was like, okay, I don't know if it made the news or whatever. But so the, I, I looked into it and I went, we had a bunch of computer science guys on our floor in uh, the residence and they showed me Netscape and the internet and the connection into it. And I was like, I just, it was like the ground moved. I couldn't believe it. And so, you know, the next day I went out and bought a modem for my computer because I didn't have one, downloaded Netscape because I had a pretty good computer. And I would say literally at that point, I was like, I kind of committed myself to like figuring this out and, and making a business out of it and the best business. And then, uh, and then I found a partner who was, is excited as well. I got him excited. And I remember just holding up the phone book and I said, uh, his name's Craig. I said, Craig, this phone book, everyone's going to have a website in the next five years. It like, and I was saying, you know how there's a phone number here? There's going to be a website. That was my, that was my kind of, kind of eureka for me. And I said, someone's got to build those. And, uh, and I said, I think we could be those people. And so we did not build websites. So we hired a bunch of computer science students to start building websites. And Craig and I just started calling. We took that same phone book and started calling the people at the biggest ads because we figured that they would have some budget or, you know, we might be interested. And so this was it, this was the end of you know begin you know, middle of '95. By the time we started calling people and set up the company, uh, we kind of kicked it off. And uh, our first few customers, we, so we built websites. And so our first few customers were um, a combination of car dealers, uh, ironically, because that's obviously the business I ended up kind of getting into a decade later. 
And then um, uh, uh, hunting camps, they were all marketing that way because it was a great way to prevent having to go to these hunting shows, which was the way they marketed. Um, and then just some random businesses, a furniture company, which is how I got into the bar stools business later on and e-commerce. So it was kind of the, the, that was my digital kind of ground. And the lesson I learned there was um, we had a pretty good business going for a couple of years. There was two lessons I learned actually. The first lesson was that event, uh, mo- it became commoditized. So in other words, it was, um, you know, we were being outcompeted with like by 15 year olds in their basements with a Mac. The, the, the customers couldn't tell the difference between us and uh, and them often. We couldn't, we weren't good at differentiating our service. Uh, so that was the first lesson we learned. So what we found was the prices were going down and down and down over time because it was like, it was becoming, and eventually of course it became the Wixes and the Shopify's that, you know, completely Protestized web design, which I hadn't, you know, kind of thought of at the time, which I would have thought of that one too. Um, and, and so we um, didn't know what to do. And so, we kind of started, uh, we had a couple interesting insights in that business. The second one was that traffic mattered more than the website. And the way we found that out is we ha- when we talked to different customers, we would get radically different feedback. Like we'd call them a year later and say, hey, how's it? We're basically trying to see if they wanted a new website or some new pages built or whatever. And we'd ask how it was going. And we'd get really different answers. And some people would be like, yeah, you know, literally hasn't, you know, you guys did a great job building this website, but I haven't generated a lick of business off of it, which was usually why they built the website. And then other um, other companies were like, yeah, this is pretty good. We're generating, you know, we're getting lots of bookings for our hunting camp. And then the other example, which I got involved in was, it was a, uh, the one that I thought was the craziest idea that the fellow who has put his bar stools online, the furniture uh, was selling lots of bar stools all over the US. And we tracked it back to one developer. So what we found out was one, if this one developer had built those sites, we had happy customers and the other developers, there was nothing. So we kind of, you know, tracked down this developer and said, like, are you like, what's going on? Why? So he had put these meta tags inside of, um, inside of the site, which we'd never heard of meta tags. And, and it wasn't really something that, oh, one sec here, I got an alarm going here. And uh, so, yeah, so we, he, and so we thought, okay, well, this was generating traffic from, there was no Google Analytics or anything like that. So there were log files. So we went and looked at the log files on the servers. And sure enough, these sites were getting traffic from back then, the early search engines like Alta Vista and Yahoo, Hotbot and those types of things. And that really changed the, the direction of, of the company because it was, uh, and really it was Craig's insight. My partner really had more of this insight than I did and, and, and took it, it really took it all the way. Um, he, was, he was a fantastic entrepreneur who, you know, and so, but that really were the, was the other insight. The other, actually, the, there was a third insight that we had. We had, a, and I actually just blogged about this recently, we had three or four car dealerships um, on there on, uh, like that we built sites for. And one day, they all three of them, the, the dealer principals called me kind of freaking out that their website was down. So it turns out it was the web host. We called the web host and they fixed it. And so I got back in touch and was surprised, you know, that they were like, I hadn't heard of, heard from them in years. And so when I called them, I thought they were, you know, I'm like, hey, you must be generating some good business. The fact that your site was down for an hour because we had a lot of customers and they were the only ones who called us. <laughs> like It was like, you know, like no one else really noticed that couple hours uh, of downtime. And uh, all of them told me the same thing, which was, no, it wasn't that the customers were using it. It was the internal dealership staff were using it to see what inventory was in stock. 
which I thought was weird because I mean, what did they do before the internet? Like what, like they've had, you know, and they said the systems that they use before the internet, they don't use anymore because the internet was way better of an interface to see the pictures and the marketing description, all that. And to me, that was where like the concept of internal development for the web, you know, kind of dawned on me as well. Like it wasn't just going to be, because at the time I thought the web was a completely external thing. And of course now, of course we use Gmail and, and all these Monday.com and all these Salesforce all these were actual internal tools and it never, again, that was a, that was a, that was a revelation at that point in time that people in companies would use the internet for their own business, not necessarily just for marketing. So it was a great kind of launching pad of my kind of entrepreneurial career. Uh, a, it was web, which was the very beginning. And, and the, those insights kind of drove me to, you know, to further, to go further on those types of things. That is super interesting. So um, there's a, a few takeaways that uh, I remember even like um, that was probably one of the biggest. So you, you shared that story with me and Steve once, and it was such a big aha moment. I remember when you said that, um, you know, you, you were building these websites or you're, you're, you're selling the websites and you convinced people that they needed to go get a website. Yeah. And, and so they were sold on the fact that they needed to get a website but you forgot to mention that you were the best, you know, company to get a website built with. And, um, and that was such a huge takeaway because, you know, when you're in a new space, especially in, in, you know, uh, tech, the tech world for the last 20 years, everything we've done has been a new space, you know, MailChimp comes out, nobody knows what email marketing is. Um, you know, you guys came out with so many different, um, products, which we'll get into. I'm sure nobody knew what they were. And so for the longest time, like websites come out, um, nobody knows what a website is. Fast forward a few years, a decade, everybody knows what a website and they know they need one. But in those early days, you get so passionate about evangelizing what it is that you're 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 a part of and the space that you're in because you see how important and how big it's going to be. You're like, um, that you can sometimes forget just to, um, you know, sell yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like it was, we, we had no, that that's, and I remember I think talking to you and, and I've talked to a few people with that is yeah, selling the, instead of selling the category, you got to sell your company. Um, and yeah, that was a huge learning experience. Like, you know, like I said, I was, we were being outcompeted by, by kids in the basement. So obviously we hadn't, wasn't, we were not selling our, ourselves. We were selling websites and it was yeah, a huge mistake. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, I've learned a lot since then, but at the time, yeah, it didn't, uh, it didn't dawn on me at all. <laughs> but then you mention, um, you know, the meta tags and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, expertise really matters because it makes all the difference, right? There's things that you know that you've been through, um, that, uh, you don't have to pay for that experience twice. And the, the, you know, the mistake I think a lot of people make when they, when they, you know, they're so green. Have you heard of the, oh, what is that? Um, Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Is that, that's where, that's the concept that as you get to know something more and more, you realize how much less, you know, or and at first yes. you have an overconfidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so the Dunning-Kruger effect um, is, is very strong. And so when you're, when you're, uh, I, I think about that when when you're educating a new um, you know a person about a new topic, it could be anything. And uh, I, I remember even talking, teaching people about blogging. It sounds so simple and easy, right? Like you're like, oh, I think I know everything there is to know about this space. And uh, 
uh, and and so you don't realize all it is that you don't know, and um, and so then the reality is you end up like so people will go in naively thinking they can do it themselves or um, you know you know I'll just, I'll just hire the cheapest person that's available, not realizing that they're about to spend a ton of money on education and it's going to cost way more in the long run. So that that's I think that's just a fascinating thing. I think um, that's a mistake that I've personally made probably. A uh, hundred times in my my own life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a it's it's a hard thing to get over. I mean, it really is. A, the effect is very strong. <laughs> and, and it's it's uh, and the other, the other thing that's kind of was I guess caught me off guard. And I guess this is maybe specific to tech. Is that there's millions of other people also building simultaneously other things that you may not know about. So as you're building, you're like, there's really nothing further here. I can, you know, you think about. You know, if you're driving down a road and you can't, you know, the road only goes another kilometer. What you don't know is there's a kilometer ahead. There's like there's a million, you know, construction workers building all the way across the country. So you're only thinking, well, the road ends in a kilometer. Maybe this this journey is done. But but in tech, especially because there's so much invest investment and it's hard to see. It's not like a, it's not as physical as, say, someone building a skyscraper. Right. It's like, imagine, you know, we can see skyscrapers go up for like a year. But the tech stuff just kind of look at ChatGPT. It just turned on one day. I mean, they've been building that for seven years or whatever. Right. I mean, and it's like, oh, my, it's just there all of a sudden. It's like, you know, it's not like it's something that's just that, you know, just it shows up and. You know, you think about video is a great example, too. I remember, again, someone telling me in the late 90s that everyone was going to be watching video. And just, it's like, there's just not enough bandwidth. There's not enough. I remember thinking, I was very, like, it's just not going to work. There's, like, you could barely watch computers. Even they're on, on CD-ROMs, they were kind of skippy, let alone over over the Internet. And obviously that, you know, Netflix was still mailing out CDs. Like, it was like, you know, it was, and all of a sudden it all kind of coalesced and, and, it was amazing. And it was like a real eye opener for me that there are like all these people building alongside that you don't see. So you, your business, you need to build for what they're building too. You know what I mean? Because you're meeting them in this, uh, in this area. And, and it took me a long time to figure that one out. I was always thinking about what am I building? Not, but what else is everyone else building too, so that I can join the party? You know what I mean? At some point. So, yeah, no. So how, that makes ton of sense Lance so how do you do that how do you um how do you get a sense a pulse of where the market's building to yeah like I mean uh what's I mean I think one of it is what's getting funded and I never looked at that back in in the day because what's getting funded is coming on stream in five years right not you think of angel you know funding or even series funding it's like it's usually like four five six years out of out of like making a genuine impact, like, especially like I, you know, I thought like there was so much money that went into laying fiber in the nineties. And I remember I even had friends who had summer jobs laying fiber across Canada and it never crossed my mind. That that's what all the video is going to run over. So like, it was like, they were just laying fiber. I thought they were just going to be a faster email. Like, I don't know, like they're, you know what I mean? And it's, um, it, it was, you know, you know, there was massive undertakings to lay fiber. And that with that to me is like something I wasn't thinking about when I was, uh, you know, it's like it just even like I said, it was right under my nose. So I think if you can, you know, if you want to see where things are five, are in five years, look where people where the investors are putting their money because they're betting on it. Right. They're, they're betting big. Now, they might be wrong. Like a lot of money went into a lot of things that not maybe aren't wrong, but take longer than they think. Like, I mean, a good example is maybe like um, 
blockchain technologies, right? I mean, a lot of money's gone into blockchain and, and our daily lives aren't too impacted. I mean, there's cryptocurrency, there's probably other you know, base applications. NFTs kind of came and not went, but I mean, you know, there was a lot of excitement and, and stuff like that. So, you know, ultimately, you know, um, you know, someone must have known that there was large language models being produced that were going to have this type of impact, but it kind of caught everyone off guard. I mean, OpenAI has been around since 2015 developing this thing. So it's like now, I mean, it, so that is so, so you don't, you're not surprised. So I think the investment world is the way where to look. Usually fundings are quite, quite open. Um, you know, for me, I like getting involved in angel investing because I can see, uh, you know, I, I enjoy dealing with early stage entrepreneurs and it's not like, you know, we, I spend a fortune on it, but it's more of an education than it is, you know, some type of, um, uh, you know, you know money-making venture. Like it's not, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you get to see where, where all the entrepreneurs are starting right now and what they're thinking because, you know, they're tiny little companies that are trying even just to raise a couple hundred grand to get their thing off the ground. Well, chances are that you start to see patterns of where people are building and it's like, okay, that might be the future then. <laughs> Yeah. And that's something you and I both really enjoy is the, is the curiosity and the learning side of it, where um, it's, 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 it's just so fascinating, right? Like if you go to, um, like you said, like a pitch event, or you just get to meet like a bunch of uh, young entrepreneurs, you, you get, it, it's, it's fascinating, like learning about what it is that they're working on and what they're doing. And, you know, fast forward a few years, you know, a percentage of those people are going to um, have created something that's going to have a big impact on the market. And that's a, that's a great point. And so, um, yeah, so what's getting funded, like what's, what's getting kind of worked on created and then the infrastructure, what infrastructure is going on? Obviously we have kind of simultaneously, we got 5g going in, we got the AI revolution. That's just literally, um, you know, AI is going to be ubiquitous. No question. Um, you have, um, you have blockchain that's just kind of sitting latent. Like, so there's probably a lot of opportunity when you could tie all those together. Yeah. I still, I mean, I don't know as my, I don't follow blockchain that much and I'm not, you know, but I just think there's too many smart people that I know personally who are too excited about it, that there's not something there. It may be like a 10 or 15 year arc though, like versus like AI, which just kind of popped in and hundred million people are using it day to day in their daily lives. So, yeah, like blockchain and AI, uh, you know, those uh, certainly are huge kind of massive innovations. Yeah, blockchain always seemed like it would have a, a big impact in, um, in you know, real products and goods. Because one of the, the things is we, we rely a lot on, um, you know, on records as to like ownership records. So property is a good example. You have your title record. Well, blockchain is great because you can't fraud it. So if you have a blockchain record, there's a lot of stuff out there, like you buy a car and you'll, you'll, you'll search the VIN number and you try to get some sort of uh, background history of it. But um, if you could get the blockchain record of it, you would know like for sure, this is the, the journey that it went on. Um, or same with, with property, especially in, in other parts of the world that don't have quite the, um, you know, the, the stable government or the local government that we have. Like if you go, I, I was watching one of those um, real estate shows and you go to Italy and you want to buy a house there. It's like you step back into the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. And then like you literally get handed this giant key 
<laughs> to the front door uh, when when you've gone through. But there's like a lot of anxiety during that that journey because um, it, there's, there isn't the legal title signing and handing off that we have where we're sort of protected by um, you know when you when you when you close that title has legally been handed to one person to the other, even though the government hasn't yet done that, hasn't processed. Right. Um, but in, you, you have so much more anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, it, there is, I mean, those are all applications that have to go to the blockchain. The one thing that always blew me away about, about say uh, Bitcoin is, um, you know, at the peak of it, there was, I think I remember reading there was $2 trillion worth of Bitcoin out there. Like that was the value of it. And, um, what blew me away is that no one works for Bitcoin. There's not one person who operates security. Imagine putting $2 trillion worth of assets out there anywhere and not having one security guard around it or one, one person who worked for that company. Like that to me is really remarkable. Like no one, like no one can, no one's ever hacked it or like, you know, imagine putting $2 trillion worth of gold in the middle of a field somewhere and just saying, don't worry, like it's safe. Like and no one works for the, you know, it just, that, that part of it is just so cool. Like, I mean, the fact that it's, it has no employees and it has no security and it's, but it's still worth trillions of dollars. It's just, it blows me away. So I think that's why I think there's like, I, I don't fully understand it all, but I think there must be something there. Like you said, in the real world examples of, you know, physical record keeping or did maybe digital ownership from a, you know, maybe even I think AI, like, I mean, now everyone's worried, well, who wrote this? Was it a person or was it an AI? The blockchain might be able to validate, you know, on record, hey, this was actually Lance did write this blog post, not ChatGPT or whatever, you know, or, you know, so there's, you know, there might be something. Oh, that there. would be, yeah. that would be great because, you know, so AI is very, very good at organizing information. I love it for that, you know, gathering and organizing, but it's not going to generate new information. There's not going to be new ideas. And so if you want to, if you want to learn novel, you have to have, you know, fresh human thought and not to say that every thought a person writes is going to be, um, you know, that Eureka thought, but still having some sort of verified human generated, that is a great idea. Well, I'm sure someone, I probably read it somewhere, Jonathan, don't give me credit for it, but I think, but I think <laughs> that would be, it seems like a major problem right now, right? Like even in school, the, the teachers don't know if the kids wrote it. But if it was on blockchain where you could see the keystrokes and, and all the things that would be normally the activity around your own writing versus like a cut and paste and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, there, you know, that could be on chain as something that was really written by the student, for example, which is like a real problem right now. Um, you know, teachers yeah. have no idea whether or not a robot or, or someone or a student wrote something, which is important because so, we don't know if they've learned, you know, we don't know if they're capable of that learning. And so, yeah, like I think the blockchain might be an AI might just kind of counterbalance out of it, if that makes sense. Or even like I was listening to a podcast. Sense. Yeah, like or even like um, there's a podcast, Sarah Silverman suing ChatGPT or whatever, OpenAI, because she because it can write jokes that sound like her and are just like her. And even she's like, hey, that's a joke I would write. But it's learned off of her, all of her writings and her book to write jokes just like her. And so, of course, there's nothing been ever. I mean, but if I, as a human, if I listen to all her jokes and I started writing jokes that sounded like her, I don't think she could sue me because I'm, I'm just expressing art artistry, right? So, I mean, there's all these new areas of law, but maybe the blockchain should, could come in there or something like that, and 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 you know, again, say that wasn't really Sarah Silverman. That was actually just a robot. If you like the robot, it sounds like so, you know, then that's you know, and maybe people at the end of the day won't won't care too much. I 
I like using the example for this is most people don't like you think of cars. I'm in the auto industry. You know, most cars are made in factories and by robotic arms and by all these things. But there are some handmade cars or like highly handmade cars. And they're, but they're like 10 times more expensive. Like you think of like the supercars and stuff like that, like Lamborghinis or McLarens, all these are, are partially at least handmade and, and unique. Whereas like, you know, most people are okay with just driving around cars that were made in factories. It's not like, oh, I need an, a piece of art in this. So I think that's where I think how that will end up being. It's like, well, if I want the real one or if I want to print, you know, a good example of art as well, right? It's like there's the original that, you know, the artist paintbrush touched and then there's all the prints. And, and we all know that there's a big difference between a Mona Lisa that, that was painted by Da Vinci and, and all the copies out there. Like it's like the original matters. So anyways, I think that that's, it's an interesting topic and and again i'm not an expert in it other than thinking about like why is everyone so excited about it that's what where my curiosity gets in when most people can't really say it's affected their lives at all except for the odd people who managed to catch the bubble with uh with cryptocurrency and uh, yeah, i have a couple of friends like that actually but i mean short of that like i don't know anyone who's like what's what would happen if blockchain disappeared tomorrow i mean other than the cryptos crashing i don't know if it would have that much impact but maybe it wouldn't yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny, um, the crypto world, um, the, so, so we had a friend, I had a couple friends who were like really, really early on in there. And I had one friend who was showing me all his crypto stuff and he was basically like doubling, 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 doubling. And this was like back in the early days. And, um, and so Stephen and I, we invested. And in, so, um, <laughs> I used the exchange out of Japan. And oh, okay. yeah. the one that went bankrupt. Oh and no. <laughs> like in 2013. Yeah. And yeah, so that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. It is like I'm I don't, I don't want to get into it, but like the amount of like legalese and back and forth, and even now it's like uncertain whether and, and of course they're not gonna give you back the cryptocurrency, they give you back the cash value at the time it went bankrupt. And so you're like, oh, it's pennies on the dollar. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I didn't know you were caught up in that. That's, I don't yeah, know because <laughs> after that happened, I kind of was like, well, um, I know that if you build a business, y you can bet on yourself. And so you get a guaranteed return based on, on like um, what you, what, you know, who, like what you're building. And so I would rather put the, uh, my time and energy towards that. And so then I completely stopped any any crypto after that. Um, I just pulled out. I was, you know, I, I think it was probably a good lesson maybe for me personally. But it, it's funny. I, I never, I don't know, told anybody that, but now I've told the world. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, I, I, yeah, that was a big story. And I, I, yeah, it's interesting to know that you were part of, you and Stephen were part of that, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were. Um, I was back then. I don't even remember you talking about it, but uh, so maybe, maybe it was just one of those things that kind of came and went. <laughs> oh man, so many of these lessons in life, eh? Um, yeah. So, so then the other thought I had uh, just on this is like it kind of made me think about um, a bit of like we, we've we've become accustomed to this almost I would call it like a candy culture where life has gotten so easy. So, but sometimes these things that we love that are so easy are are. So um, when you're talking about ChatGPT and like, how do you verify that a person wrote it? You know, if I was a kid in school, um, why wouldn't I use ChatGPT, you know? But the reality is, is that candy's delicious, but in a tiny little amount. Like my wife and I, we were celebrating our anniversary this weekend. So we're at Grey Monk Winery 
and we're sitting there and we're overlooking the Okanagan Valley and the angle that they have, it really makes you feel like you're in, you're in Europe, you're in Italy somewhere. It's just beautiful. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're sitting on, on the, um, uh, the patio and they're coming out and they're pairing the food with the wine and they, and then they bring these different meals and it's just, is so like the moment is so delicious. It's the complete opposite of a candy culture because you know, you, you savor everything and it, and it's got so much flavor and it tastes great. Um, I, I worry sometimes because writing, I know that there, are, that there are people who, who talk about like John C. Maxwell would be an example. Like he, he says just like every week, jot down your thoughts. It doesn't have to be like big, just jot them down. But the process of jotting down things is, is very, very, um, powerful. If you get used to that and, and like just writing your thoughts week after week after week, and there's other, um, I've heard other people say, share the same sort of thing. And so the practice of writing is so, so benefit beneficial that if someone can learn it at a young age and they can keep doing, it becomes part of their life. Um, it's a very, very healthy trait. But then if you get used to chat GPT being able to write for you, then you never get the opportunity to learn how to process our, you know, our, th- our thoughts that way. So it's just an interesting yeah. side. Yeah, it's, it, it is. And I mean, you think of all kind of mechani- mechanization of anything, right? I mean, we can drive or we can walk, right? I mean, walking and running or whatever has a massive impact on our health, but driving is way faster and way more efficient, right? And, and I think ChatGPT will be in that category of like, we still have to learn how to exercise our minds. And, and, and yeah, we can use it for some of the heavy redundant lifting, you know what I mean? Where it's like, we're probably not going to get a lot of, you know, value, but you're right. I mean, being able to express your thoughts in writing is a skill beyond probably any other type of writing skill, in my view, unless you're an author, I suppose, being able to tell other people's stories or whatever, but, but the, but I, and, and there's just no way you can mechanize that. And not that I know of, unless maybe someday there'll be probes in our brain, but, but I think, but yeah, that is the, that is a paramount life skill is the, the ability to, to write down your thoughts and express them to yourself at least, or maybe even other people, but especially to yourself. <laughs> like, cause I mean, having a dialogue with yourself in writing is way more powerful than just having a bang around in your head. And, and, and yeah, like, can you imagine if kids didn't learn how to do that? Oh my goodness. Like that would be like, a, it would be a travesty actually, you know? So these teachers have some challenges on that. And I think, you know, maybe the writing has to be more creative now, something that ChatGPT at least for now can't do. Right. And, um, but I, I, I don't know, it's, it's gotta be resolved, right? It's, it's, we cannot mechanize thinking, at least from a personal wellness standpoint, it's brutal, right? I, and, you know, it's, it'd be interesting to see where we are. We're only six months into this thing, five months or whatever it's been. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, it is incredible. I, I use it all the time. I use it every day now. It's, Me it's too. so, I mean, yeah, I'll, I yeah, and I'll write stuff and I'll be like, can you please edit this? <laughs> yeah, like, especially it if it's low. I would say like when I, if it's lower grade type of editing, I think it's like normally if I have an assistant, I would just tell that assistant to do this. So now I just have this, you know, robot assistant. And and I think that's a great use of it. And I don't think it's making me dumb or anything like that, but I've got to be careful. You know what I mean? And mindful of like, am I actually losing some skill? Like if I drive all the time instead of walk, I'm definitely losing some health, but gaining a lot of time and efficiency. So there's got to be a time and place. And I think we have to just be mindful of that as time goes on and with our kids and, and, you know, with ourselves and yeah, hopefully it's, 
you know, hopefully it all works out. <laughs> I'm sure it will. <laughs> oh, it, it, yeah. And like, there's other things you can do with ChatGPT, which is really powerful, which I, I discovered was I had a, I had a list of anecdotal sources. So there was like all these people who were coming and, um, and they were basically putting down like, you know, the, the open-ended uh, question, how did you hear about us? And, um, and so I had all this, this data, but it, every answer is a little bit different, right? And so I put that in, I gave it to ChatGPT and I said, could you um, group these by sources? And it did. It just kind of, it, it did a really, really good job. Like I would say nine out of 10. And then I said, could you, like some of these sources are the same. Could you update this information? And so it did. And then I was like, could you, could you pull out all, any sources that are, are rel- like related to this? And, I, and it did. And then I said, okay, now can you quantify which which are getting the best um, or like um, by volume, which sources is um, and and it, and it did and I got this amazing spreadsheet as a, as a CSV file that I could then upload and put in to anywhere and I was just like wow that was done by ChatGPT I thought that was the coolest coolest thing I've um, so stuff like that where yeah and you can you and it can accept any file format except Excel CSV um, you know spreadsheet like you just put it in there and it and it does what it needs to do it's very cool um and so, it's, so, it's just started like i mean what's, what's going to be able to do and i and i think that to be fair it was worked on for seven years but i mean but it is amazing how functional it is like it's amazing how long they waited to generally release it um you know they wanted it to be to blow people away like it's just it's, it's outstanding wow <laughs> it is it really is outstanding um I even know somebody that's writing uh, unit tests with it. Like it's so powerful. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, so, uh, so back to um, so you're you're building websites. Like, did you think at that time website business could be a, a, like a really big thing, or or, or like where you quit pretty early on to pivot out of that? Yeah, like I'd say we pivoted out. So we started that in '95 and pivoted out in '98. So we were about two and a half years into that. Till we realized that really like most of the money was more in, you know, we kind of pivoted into trap what I'd call traffic, like, which would be affiliate marketing um, type of work, you know, utilizing some of the skills we'd learned in traffic generation. Um, you know, Craig really focused, might know my partner uh, really was focused on SEO and I was focused actually a lot on domain names. Uh, you know, that that's kind of where I, him and I actually, um, uh, ended our partnership and uh, I worked on domain names and he worked more on the SEO side, but they actually re-coalesced about a couple of years later, ironically, because what we found, what I, what I kind of innovated um, was that I, I had, and I think I might've been the only person for probably about three months who understood this, that um, you could buy an old domain name and that was expired and build a website on it. And it would have all the power of the previous website. So you could uh, take an old domain name that was, you know, like, a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, something that someone abandoned, but it was actually quite popular at the time and then light it up as a, uh, a finance remortgage site. And it would be the number one finance remortgage site in Google or Yahoo. And so I was, you know, uh, that was part of it. So that's where that business kind of coalesced again. Uh, so I was doing SEO and um, uh, and domain name, kind of like I had a unique spin on it, if you want to call it that. I had a partner, uh, a different partner at that point, who we were, he was a great domain name, you know, uh, speculator, collector, 
um, and uh, actually I, in, in Penticton of all places. And, um, and he was, he, him and I joined, you know, he actually was an investor and the only investor slash partner in my company. So we raised uh, about $60,000 back in 2000 and, um, and started this company where we combined kind of domain name with SEO. And that was kind of like, that was the next kind of chapter for me. Um, and I was a bit of a, I learned this term later. I was a portfolio entrepreneur. So I had many companies at the same time versus serial entrepreneurs who go back to back to back, but stay focused on one. So at that point in time, I had the SEO domain name business, but I also had the bar stools business, which kind of came out of it using, which was an e-commerce site that was selling bar stools, you know, basically all over the United States and Canada online. So I had those running in simultaneously. I had different partners. And so they were different companies and, and different uh, shareholders. Um, and I ran those simultaneously. And then at that point, I also started a third company called Proaxis. And it would buy stressed websites, sites that had kind of been abandoned, but had great content and backlinks. I'd buy them. And then we, you know, with, again, another group of owners and that's a different, and we would improve those using SEO and other techniques. Um, and, you know, just basically improve the sites and generate cash flows off of that. So from about 2001, 2000 to about 2005 or six, I kind of had those three companies uh, going simultaneously. They were all uh, great cash flow companies. So I wasn't raising money against those. And I didn't kind of have that traditional, uh, like, or that you think of that tech where you have to raise money and wait years in order to kind of, you know, they had cash flows right away. It never came across my mind to raise money. I didn't know how that worked. It was like a new, I, you know, and so, you know, we kind of used the cash flows in that company. And, um, and eventually the, the kind of in 2006, we started, uh, I kind of got rid of all of that. And combined all that into a company called Lemon Free. And um, I took a couple partners from each of those ventures, kind of uh, sold off a couple of the Barstool business we sold and um, and really kind of coalesced on Lemon Free. And the reason was, is I wanted to kind of get out of this portfolio thing. I felt like I was getting stretched too thin and all of them were doing fine. Like we were making a great living, but it wasn't like as exciting as kind of going for it. And that was the first time we really kind of went for it, where it was like, let's see if we can create a scalable business. So, um, and by 2000, so we started in 2005 or six, and then by 2009 or 10, it was doing 3 million unique visitors a month, um, you know, of automotive, you know, shopping traffic. It's basically, uh, it was an auto trader cars.com competitor down in the U S only. So even though we were in Winnipeg, we, we decided to only launch in the U S and so that was really, you know, kind of the first real scalable thing that we had, we had kind of given a shot at. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so that was kind of how that all, like, there's, you know, there was a lot of companies going on at the same time <laughs> for a while. So a lot of people were like, wow, well, you've started a lot of companies. Well, yeah, they were kind of happening at the same time, though. It was kind of a strange thing. Uh, I, I, it, um, I wouldn't recommend it, actually. I, I do think that it's probably better to focus on one thing. Um, that was a good lesson I learned. It's better to be focused on one thing rather than, especially if you have a lot of ideas, it's very tempting to, it, I shouldn't say that. And, and it depends what your goals are, actually. But I mean, for me, my goal was to scale something. It's hard to scale three things at once. You know, I think of like, I don't know how guys like uh, Elon Musk do it. He's a portfolio entrepreneur. He's, you know, he got all those different companies and, um, seems to be able to pull it off, but I wasn't able to really pull it off that well, uh, you know, to, to scale anyway. They were all great companies from a profitability standpoint, all that kind of stuff. None of them went bankrupt or anything. They just weren't 
scaling like I think a company like those could. I saw people who focused on any one of those things scale their companies. You know what I mean? So I was like, oh, I probably could have scaled these companies too, any of them, if I would have stayed focused and kind of true on it. You know, that that's a really interesting, um, it's an interesting thought experiment because there are personalities that are good at portfolio and there are personalities where it's almost like they do business the way they would do like uh, whatever task they do in life. So right. it's like you see that guy who who's, you know, when he's making dinner, he's making dinner. Yeah. Like ask him a question and it's like, he's just not like even barbecuing. Like some people like they yeah, barbecue, yeah. they are barbecuing. Yeah. You're holding a beer. You're asking them how they're doing. They're like, just hold on a sec. Just hold on a sec. Got to flip these. <laughs> and then other people, um, you know, they're having a great conversation. They're flipping their, their, uh, their steaks and there's no big deal. And so <clears throat> I, I have, I have witnessed that as well. There's, there's definitely personalities that are naturally portfolio people. I was going to like dive into that a little bit with you, but you, you actually kind of answered my question. Um, and which is awesome. Like I, I do see that. I, I obviously there's like the Elon Musk of the world, the Richard Branson's, these people that are really good at going lateral, but then allowing the business to, to keep growing, um, uh, you know, in, in size. And, uh, I obviously they're, they're good with teams too. So they obviously have put good teams in place that can, can really execute. And I think that is the difference. And, and, you know, that's a great point. I, you know, um, Richard Branson's gone on the record, you know, when people say, well, where do you spend your time? Like, I mean, usually to see him kind of with these lifestyle pictures and stuff like that. And he said when he's working, he spends half his time looking for leaders. And, and, uh, and I remember reading that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and I wasn't doing that. I was trying to work in the business because that's what I like doing. I like working in the business, kind of getting my hands dirty. Whereas I wasn't out there looking for, for, top talent to kind of fit the role of the vision I had. And I think that's something, and I'm guessing Elon, but you always think of Elon being directly in the business too, but he must have a fantastic group of people around him. Um, He's obviously, you know, who wouldn't want to work for him and learn? I mean, maybe I'm actually probably now a lot of people wouldn't, but I mean, I'm just saying like, like a lot of people are highly attracted to Elon and his mission and yeah, that's right. Because incredible talent. Yeah, he's, yeah. To sit on, just to be on the sidelines and observe. Yeah, I mean, be part of history because you know whatever he's doing is like whatever happens with Twitter was a it was a heck of a story and and it'll go down in history. Something I observed with you, which uh, was pretty actually, I think, uh, very enlightening for myself, um, was I remember uh, when I met you. This would have been like uh, I think. Well, uh, maybe 2012, 2013, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And um, I saw a lot of, you can almost call them starving artists. They were they were people that got into entrepreneurship. They were very, very excited. Um, maybe they were, they were raising money and they were lean <laughs> and dying. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I met this guy um, named Lance who um, was growing, was profitable, was making money his business you, you know your business was doing better every single year like year after year after year after year yeah um you, you were you had a co-founder you were in a healthy uh business uh you know situation your development team was uh world class and they were getting better and and i was like wait there's another option <laughs> and so maybe on the close here um as we we wrap up um could you could you share a little bit about that and then and then maybe sort of your own like final thoughts 
that you'd want to leave somebody with? Yeah, you know, and you know, in some ways, I didn't realize there was another option. I mean, I guess I did because you, I, I thought those, I thought people who operated that way were mostly down in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I actually considered going down there in the late 90s. I think all Canadian people in tech did because it was the dot-com craziness. And it's like you felt like you were missing something. Like, it's like, can I really do this from Canada or Winnipeg especially? And, and you know, my, my belief was that I just, I, I just didn't want to raise money because I just was too interested in building the company. And it didn't – it seemed contrary. Now, you know, like I – and, you know, the reality is is – I also always picked companies that I could get to cash flow quickly. And so like I didn't pick a company where there's a large build out where it would take years to get it to market. And and I understand that there has to be companies like that. I mean, most of the most scalable companies are done like that. But my thought was if you can get to a little bit of cash flow, then you don't have to raise. And if you don't have to raise, you get to keep it. And if you get to keep it, you get to do what you want. And that was kind of like my kind of like, you know, that kind of, fuel like i wanted to be able to do what i want with my i always had partners so it wasn't like i could do whatever they want i always had partners but we could do what we wanted and and it just that control really meant something to me um and the the growth for for me per se wasn't necessarily in the in the massive scalability but but how we were getting like all those things how are we getting incrementally better all the time learning more having better development teams having you know, learning new systems, you know, gathering data, getting, you know, learning from customers. And it was very, I, I, yeah, like it was very much like an increment kind of style of growth. And again, I don't even know how conscious it was, Jonathan, like, you know, it just was the way that fit me. And, and, um, and, and maybe we can get to this part into part two, but, you know, I, you know, in about 2015, I sold the company and part of, but, but also became part of that company. So it was, it was a, we took back a lot of shares in that company, mostly because I wanted to see what it'd be like to be part of something that scaled. So that's kind of like the next part of my my career because you saw me up until then, but but there's been a lot that's happened. So maybe we'll we'll leave that as a cliffhanger, Jonathan, for the for the next one, if that makes. But yeah, that that's certainly and and it's it's interesting to contrast those two different kind of mindsets, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. No. So thank you, Lance. I have uh, deeply appreciated this conversation as always. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, me too. This has been great as always, Jonathan. Happy to do this anytime and uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon, I'm sure. Let's go.